My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. One art world insider called him the most charismatic artist since Jean-Michel Basquiat. Like the great Basquiat, Dash Snow was a graffiti writer who moved into the gallery world, was dismissed as a lightweight clown, became an international art star, and died a drug-related death in his 20s. There's more, much more to the story of Dash Snow, an heir to a fortune who immersed himself in New York's sex, drugs, and art world demimond of the early 2000s as one of a triumvirate with Ryan McGinley and Dan Colon dubbed Warhol's Children by New York Magazine. Now Cheryl Dunn's long-in-the-making documentary begun with Snow's cooperation Moments Like This Never Last is out and destined to add to the legend of this self-destructive bad boy artist. I wanted to make a film that put you in New York City with Dash at that time, rolling around with him and his crew, said Dunn. A film you could feel from every one of your senses, but couldn't quite describe. A filmic expression of Dash's life and art told to you in his words, with his imagery. Well, Cheryl, I think you did it. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So why Dash Snow? I always have documented my friends that were artists as their careers commenced. And I just really thought it was an important thing. And go to your friends' shows, take some pictures, shoot a little video. I just really always had this reverence for artists early in their careers and these real special times. And I just thought it was important to, to always do that for my friends. And I met him as a young graffiti writer. At the time, I was kind of immersed in a number of other graffiti writers' lives. And uh, I just started, um, I just was really kind of fascinated by that world and the community. And I thought at that time in the late 90s that I would someday make a film about graffiti writers. So I just started doing interviews and recording some of the guys and girls. They didn't know that many girls that I knew. And he was one of them. And I met him as a 19-year-old. And he was such a really magical light of a kid. And we collaborated on a couple of things. And I really always followed him. And we just kind of became buddies. So well, at that time, I'm, you know, you wouldn't think that he wouldn't have passed in 10 years from there, in less than 10 years. You know, I was just kind of recording him because I thought he was a really incredible, special New York character. So you weren't necessarily focused on him right away. You were interested in the whole group of people who were included in that world, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. When did you start to think of it as him standing out from all of that? Well, he just, you know, every fiber of his being was an artist. Everything he did from his his whole existence was that of an artist. And I just was really drawn to him as, as were many, many, many people. So I just made sure that I would go to his openings and go to his gallery show and shoot off an hour video, like have him tell me what was up. And when he passed, I knew that 
It was a story that needed to be protected. There was a lot of controversial opinions about him. People that knew him loved him. People that didn't know him sometimes hated him. And they had an idea of who he was. And when anyone had a negative response, I would say, did you know the guy? Did you ever meet him? And they would always say no. You know, I knew I had this archive of him and it was pre-cell phone, pre-video. So there was a lot of pictures of him. He was amused to many people, many, many photographers, but there was not that much video. And I knew I had this pretty extensive archive of him asking him just really life questions. One night we went into this sea squat on uh, Avenue C and I just filmed him for about 90 minutes. It's like, do you want to have kids? What do you like really simple questions about life? So, you know, that kind of became the thread of the movie, but not until he passed did I really think that this needed to happen and it needed to happen from people on the inside, because there were a lot of people coming from Europe and the West Coast asking others in New York if they had film, that they were going to make a film about Dash Snow. And I said to some of the friends, I'm like, you know, film is really, is really has a lot of power. It's very far reaching. And the first thing that gets in the world is what people are going to think is true. And you have to protect this story. And they were like, you should make it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, I'll try. But that's kind of how it evolved. Well, you mentioned the controversy. And I know, because I wasn't an intimate of his in any way. And of course, I knew about him, but I, I wasn't a part of that scene too much, really. And even I, I feel, was affected by the story that is part of the background of, of your piece and was a very big part of his life, obviously, and something that he was trying to deal with as well. And I'm talking about his family coming as he did from this tremendously wealthy, famous art world family, the De Manils from Houston and the Dia Art Foundation and just a long history of amazing story that, you know, involves Robert Thurman and the Thurmans, you know, it's just sort of an amazing story. And when you hear it, you figure, oh, this is just like a rich kid playing around in this world of art, So, and he doesn't really have to succeed, so he could afford to do this. I feel like something that was he had to grapple with, as well as you and others who met him. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. There's so many different stories, and I chose to mention the family, but I didn't want to make this a I wanted it to be about him and he chose in his life to, to be independent. I don't know whether it was a choice, sometimes not, and sometimes yes, to be independent of his family and to be just an individual and in who he was. And so the public connection to his family was really difficult for him. And you can have perceptions of what that entailed, but nobody really knows anyone's inside life story unless they tell you, you know. And uh, so I know what I know, but um, I chose to not really make this film about that because that is a whole another film. Right. Well, that's a whole psychological <laughs> like therapy uh, you know, thing for him. Yeah. I mean, there are his, you know, I have Stephen Powers Espo say like one day Dash said to him, like, I got something to tell you. And he says, yeah, uh, you know, I'm. I'm part of the DeMinnell family and the Schlomberg fortune and all this stuff. And he went home and looked it up and he had known Dash writing graffiti for years and had no idea, you know, and I don't think a lot of people did until that New York magazine story came out and went deep into that. 
I personally don't have that experience to be judged by my family. So I don't know what that is like, but I know that it was hard for him. But we should also mention that prior to him arriving on the streets of New York, he had this terrible experience with his family or his mother, particularly sending him away to the school that was basically for juvenile delinquents or difficult, quote, difficult kids. Someplace he stayed for a couple of years, eventually escaped, moved to New York, lived in a squat and was just sort of just getting by as like other people who were in the same situation. From that point on, I feel like he decided that he wasn't going back. He was very estranged from his family. And that place, Hidden Lake Academy, he was abducted and taken there, which was a practice at that time with many, you know, Paris Hilton came out and talked about a place that she was taken to, you know, but it was a practice. And uh, this place, Hidden Lake, was only a few years old and he was the youngest kid there. And what they did, they'd wait till like a group of 20 or 30 kids and then they would put them in like a grouping. And so he had been taken there, I think, in the summer and had to just be in this place. It wasn't really a school. I mean, I think they maybe taught them some school <laughs> stuff, but that's not what I, I talked to another guy who I found who had a surf shop down in Lower East Side. And he went there at the same time as Dash. And it was basically a work camp. These kids were, they were building the school for the subsequent batches of kids. And there was a military academy across the street. We're in like rural Georgia. And these Guys at the military academy were also 17, eight-year-olds and were probably getting the shit beaten out of them over there. So then they would come and they were like the guards for these kids having to dig ditches to build this school. The place is closed. It burned down mysteriously. And so did all the files. But there's many lawsuits about the abuse that happened at this place that was found out years later. It was not not a good place. So I think he was completely distraught. And when he escaped and finally got back to New York, he just was pretty pissed off <laughs> that he got, that he had to go there. <laughs> well, it kind of helped shape who he was or how he presented himself. As this. Absolutely. Yeah. In hindsight, you know, when I read about this school. I tried to do as much research as I could and went down there. Actually, it's a Christian teen camp now. And I went with a guy that wrote a book about it. He was uh, younger than Dash, but we drove onto the property and we snuck in there and he showed me like these weird cabins that they would be locked away if they did something bad by themselves in the woods. And we just kind of snuck on this property and met some teachers. And another teacher that he was very close with told me a lot about like they had to be absolved of like anything that was their identity they had to wear. They couldn't wear any logos. He had to wear khakis and plain t-shirt and had, no one could have long hair and no, they couldn't listen to music. They had censored books, like books with subversive words or anything about sex, drugs, and rock and roll cut out of the books. So ironically, then that in a way becomes part of his art practice is collaging like with these kinds of words of things that he was denied and his style was pretty extravagant and it was very much a backlash i believe from this period of time of his life you know well he he's really informed his character and art practice speaking out against authority i think was his main Ex 
focus, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it really informed his his life after that. Yeah, and he and he went around just acting that out. In fact, by breaking mm-hmm. laws, whether it's graffiti, Iraq stealing stuff, just living in squats, doing everything against whatever the common way of handling of living would be accepted, any accepted norm. Correct. Yeah. Even his artwork, he would like ejaculate on artwork. He would just do anything that was outrageous. Yes. <laughs> he pushed it to the edge. He pushed it. And, and, you know, and also, you know, jumping from rooftop to rooftop, doing things that, you know, Tino Razo said to me, you know, he was, was pretty wild kid. And he said when he met Dash, he was just like, okay, kind of like the animal kingdom, you know, like <laughs> the alpha. two tigers, you know, like I recognize that you'll do crazier things than me. So I bow down to that. <laughs> well, including doing the graffiti on the Brooklyn Bridge, right? The fuck Giuliani piece. Nobody could quite believe that he actually did that. Yeah, he became notorious after that. And I think he skipped town for a minute. <laughs> so he was never arrested or... I don't believe he was arrested in New York. He was definitely arrested in California, but he he was really harassed. His grandmother was harassed. They were after him, but I don't think, I don't think legally they got to really catch you with, he was arrested in New York. Yes, but not for that, but they were just trying to get him. He was definitely, Targeted. if a cop pulls you over and you have a Sharpie in your pocket, they could be like, that's a graffiti material. And I think that he says that happened to him. But for the bridge, I don't think they ever could pin it on him. You mentioned his grandmother, who seems to be the one sympathetic character out of his family story, who was actually there for him and stood beside him and possibly even provided money for him during those days before he became an art star. They were very close. I don't know verbatim the exact kind of support, but he truly loved her and she was really cool and they were very close. So would you think the story is a cautionary tale? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> don't do heroin. <laughs> okay, so that's... Well, I was, try- I was trying to um, license a Neil Young song through the end of the film. And uh, really put a lot of energy into it. And at one point, one of this person's of his management team said, are people doing drugs in this film? And then I was like, oh, well, not exactly. Then I like was looking at it more closely. I'm like, well, no one's shooting heroin. And I'm like, well, it's actually an anti-drug film, you know, is what I said. But they still wouldn't give me the song. <laughs> so do you think heroin was the thing? Just before we even get there, we know from your film that he got married. So there were certain steps he was taking to have a more normal, quote, normal life, mm-hmm. even as he was part of this group. You know, he was pretty young and I don't, at that time, none of his friends had children. You know, they all, a lot of them do now. It's a difficult transitional period of time for anybody like 26, 27, you know, like historically how many of our art music heroes have died at 27, right? Maybe you have to go from not having responsibility to having some responsibility. And he was such a free spirit more so than most people, which 27 is hard for most people that around that age. And then he had a child that he really loved deeply, but I, I don't know that he 
it was difficult for him to figure out that responsibility or like how to even be a father. I don't know that he, or a parent in general, I don't know that he had any examples that he wanted to follow. Yeah. Close, but you, you have know, some perhaps. very sweet shots and especially at the end of the film of him playing with his daughter and, you know, obviously he loved his daughter and cherished that time with her. That footage just, it breaks me down every single time. You know, you edit a film and you probably watch a film 20 billion times. I could still get to that part and choke up because to me, it was just like so pure, kind of like tribalism, you know, a family, but that maybe would be in some jungle somewhere, but you're in a loft on the Bowery, but it was just like feeding the baby. It was just so beautiful and fleeting, obviously. I mean, Agat says to me in the film that he he didn't want to damage his daughter or he, he knew that he was having this problem and he thought he didn't want to like influence, I don't know, not be there after she's two years old or some some kind of quote. Or she damage said like her that. psychologically yeah. through yeah. his own behavior or history or it's complicated because, yeah. you know, the, if you're traumatized, you often pass that trauma down. But that is still the case anyway. So it's tragic that he didn't have a chance or wasn't able to overcome that. But you said, you know, the 27, like the Kurt Cobain is like a very yeah. similar with a young child also. Yeah, exactly. I think to be a great artist, you just, your insides and your outsides are really clear. Your, your emotions have to be close to the surface. And a lot of artists don't have this this shell that protects them because you have to have to mine your creativity. You have to mine this stuff that's inside of you and bring it out. So sometimes there's just not this protection against the world, you know, in lots of cases, you know, a lot of artists that are that extreme don't survive. You know, we mentioned one also important moment that you capture. And it seems like it's, it really had a huge impact in, on him was this New York Magazine story, Warhol's Children, which uh, exposed him to the world, you know, of, of what people had already knew. His friends and associates, I suppose, had already been informed about this. But suddenly here we are, the, the heir to this art world fortune. Presumably, I don't know if he would have inherited any of it or not, but uh, somebody who had that kind of life and living this very opposite you know, anything but a luxurious lifestyle, but still claiming an art world existence. You know, it makes me wonder about that whole story. How did it happen? Why did he do it? I know they talk about his resistance in the piece. And, you know, I wonder about Dan. I think it was pitched in a different way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it and it didn't come out the way it was pitched. Can you tell a little bit about the story for our audience? I haven't read it in a long time, but I, I just... I just did. I, I just, just read it. Oh, you did? tell. Then you tell us. <laughs> well, it just, you know, tries to sort of follow or dash around with Dan Colin and Brian. Ryan McGinley, who it seems like really want to be in the story because I think they wanted to be successful artists in a way that Dash didn't really embrace it in the same way, even though he was becoming successful along with them. I just felt that they really wanted it. They kept on connecting the writer with him and trying to bring him into it. So I kind of wonder 
And it talks about all the things that we've been talking about, all his crazy drug antics, his behavior, misbehavior, this bad boy persona that he not only cultivated, he didn't cultivate it. I feel like it was real at this point. Didn't really have any other options. That's one thing that came up to me. Did Brian and Dan, was it because they really wanted it that the story happened at all? That's a question for them. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, I don't really know. I tried to uh, talk to the writer. She was not interested, but I think those guys wanted to do it. Obviously they did it and, and maybe Dash did too, but I don't think it, it came out the way he thought it was going to come out. And he was really embarrassed and he wanted to crawl in a hole. What was it that they didn't like? I mean, it was, was it the attitude of the writer more than just the actual content? Yeah. Well, he subsequently made a piece called How Much Talent Does It Take to Come on the New York Post? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he did a whole like show in press projects in Los Angeles with male porn stars and had them coming on like that statement. And he made art out of that, you know, you know, this writer was trying to like take him down and he made it into art, which is interesting and awesome. But I think it was just like, he really just wanted to be himself, but the story was all about his family. Mm. And I think it was the first time that that, and it was, you know, a big high profile piece. And he said he'd be walking on the street and she'd be like, oh, that's that guy. You know, like it really, he couldn't just be himself because now he was connected to this family that he was estranged with that he tried not to be connected to seemingly. So and he kind of also stands out to me as someone who didn't use his fame in, to go and meet famous people or be that kind of guy, the celebrity guy who, okay, now I'm famous. So I want to hang out with other famous people that he stayed very close to his group and his core scene. I mean, he was the most, he would, <laughs> He would be as friendly and open to the dude living, you know, living over the grate on 23rd Street as as Mick Jagger. You know, he was so open and so personable with every kind of person. That was his his charm. And I think he also felt more comfortable with obviously he was, you know, had this network of graffiti writers and your average graffiti writers not coming from privilege, you know, like I met some kids in San Francisco, you know, like these were his like really close friends and they were all mostly not coming from privilege at all, you know? So he just was, he was the most non-judgmental, like he was just so open to every kind of person and also every kind of age of person. Like he loved being around older artists that he knew through his grandmother it was not ageist. He was not judgmental in like where you came from. He was just really special, open soul. And, you know, I had friends that I was a curator in um, this session, the bowl show. And I had friends of mine that were from California. They just sort of knew of him or they watched him from afar. And they were like, I don't want to get mixed up with that guy. And then I'd say, no, no, no. And I'd introduce them. And within two minutes, they're like, they fell, fell in, love in love with him, with you him. know, because he was so, you know, open and special and friendly. So let's talk about you for a minute as well. Before you got into the Dash No story, you already had a career. And in fact, part of your life is in this documentary, I noticed, like the 9-11 
aspect. You're already shooting photography for the most part, as far as I know, right? As opposed to film or, or video back then? No, I was Both? I was probably making films, started making films in the late 90s. Late 90s. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, and you were living down in the right near the World Trade Center when the 9-11 happened, and there's some of that footage in there. Uh, are you trying to say that there was a relationship between what happened then and what happened to Dash and this crew and this sort of attitude of artists of, of that time, these sort of downtown artists? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I really think that that context is totally informative and crucial to this story. You know, it's like kind of currently, you know, or last year, you know, New York, when 9-11 happened, New York was really taken down to, to the core, taken down to the ashes, so to speak, like people with, with means left town, people with children left town and downtown was like kind of a wasteland. And, you know, you were in New York in the seventies, eighties, you know, where people, areas that nobody wanted to live in what happened, like clubs started, artists came in, rents went lower. And so it became like the city for 20 year olds, young people came in and what did they make from their experience of having been here when that happened? And then New York totally going from like such a money, money town to like, like a whole different dynamic. And the art is super reflective of that and what people made and the things that were available and the cost of things. I lived a half a block from the World Trade Center and I had uh, two floors in this loft building. One is was where I worked and one was where I lived and I couldn't go there and I was basically homeless. And so for a while and all I did was shoot on the streets and also City Hall is right there. And I had been shooting the protests against Giuliani, Amida Diallo and the police brutality in the late 90s. So to be able to tell this story with my own archive was really satisfying that I could paint a picture of what it was like on the streets at that time was uh, was fun. And hopefully since I made the rest of the movie to have this and not have it have this footage that is in my point of view, I hope gave the viewer a real like kind of immersive feeling that was coming from the same point of view as the rest of the movie. Actually, I'm actually working with that footage right now for something else. And we know that right now is 20 year anniversary coming this September. So there's a lot of entities that have licensed that footage of mine of that time. But I think it has a lot of parallels to the New York that we're experiencing now. You know, there's this town is these young people are flying in from all over the country and it's like kind of a whole new energy on the street. It's really exciting. Oh, really? So you notice things like that of people flying yep. in? Young people, yep. where are they? What are they doing? Flying. Where do I meet them? No. I want to hang out. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's cool vibes on the street, actually. Interesting. And so what is this new project? Anything you can tell us about? I'm just trying to make a piece that is with my archival from 20 years ago and what was going on on the streets and equate it to the feeling I have about New York now. You know, New York just reinvents itself all the time, you know, but when really desperate, really extreme things happen, it reinvents itself in a bigger way, you know, and I think 
now and 20 years ago has a lot of similarities. And I kind of just want to make a piece that's connecting those two yeah, times. Now I want to see it. You've made this other documentary, uh, several other documentaries. One is Everybody's Street about uh, street photographers. So, so obviously you have an affinity for that like street <laughs> life in that way. When I'm out there, that's when I'm most happy. But I really feel like you also have been writing and making journalism about culture that comes from the streets your whole career, right? You see these things brew and then the non-street eyes catch a hold and then they kind of co-opt things. But so, or co-opt or, you know, celebrate them however you want to look at it. But yeah, I've, I love the organic confluence of people and compositions and light and things that happen on the streets of New York. It's a really incredible, really special place to, to shoot pictures, just the topography, the way people move, the island that's surrounded by rivers, the way lights bouncing off of these skyscrapers. It's just a, an incredible like vista to, to find images in. And so I made a film now, I don't know, 10, more than 10 years ago, uh, about came out about 10 years ago. Um, it was initially a, a commission from the Seaport Museum. If you remember that museum, <laughs> it went underwater yeah. uh, <laughs> Sandy, but they were doing an Alfred Stieglitz exhibition and they wanted to bring in a, a younger audience, a different audience. And a friend of mine that was working with them reached out to me and she said, come up with an idea. And I said, I wanted to make a film about street photographers that kind of followed in his footsteps and went to the streets and made a substantial body of work, but that were living to talk to me. And so I got to meet my idols and I made this short and then I went back and kept going and, and made a feature. It was about 12 artists, the older, older generation, you know, there's an incredible amount of great street photographers and you have to make a choice when you make a feature film, you have 90 minutes to tell some stories and you have to allow enough time for people to care about your character. So I chose to concentrate on the artists that had, you know, longer careers because maybe my time was more limited to speak to them. And already three artists have passed since I'd made that film. So I think it's an important, you know, I don't know. It's a great I document. really believe in art history and and getting getting that down while people are here to speak about well, it. Well, one of them is Ricky Powell, who oh now four yep four oh, artists the now are gone. Fourth, damn. Who were the other yeah. three? Um, Mary Ellen Mark, Rebecca Lebkoff, Jill Friedman. Uh, yeah, so Ricky Powell, who passed this year, who was a friend and also had been on this podcast. And that was an amazing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I remember listening to it. Thank you. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> what was it that stood out in terms of Ricky? Because a movie came out about him, The Individualist, recently that also played at the Tribeca Film Festival. I don't know if you saw it or not. Did you? I saw two thirds of it before the lightning struck oh. the screen and they called it. <laughs> So I still get the back. That's right. Yeah, I saw you there. I forgot for yeah. a minute. Yeah. So uh, Ricky. So what is any any words to say about? Yeah. His? I mean, I I knew Ricky. You know, from the streets, of course, <laughs> and legend, and um, from the Beastie Boys, and um, he. To me, you know, there's many characteristics that go into a great street photographer, and sometimes people have one or two. And he was so. You know, he was really different than a lot of the other artists in the film. And he kind of was that New York City character that you look for on the streets 
two photographs. Right. He was that guy, <laughs> you know? So he could go up to anybody and talk to them and get them to pose because he just had this New York way. I mean, he like when he passed, it was like a piece of New York fell off into the river. I mean, he just is such a quintessential New Yorker. And um, he's like, he's the kooky guy that he's a character that I like that I search for on the streets. He's that guy, you know, he just could say anything to anyone and get people to pose, obviously, when you look at his work. And, and I'm really happy about this new doc because they really went into his archive and they really pulled out images I had never seen that are amazing. And before that, you were into the skate scene as well. And I remember seeing actually one of your pieces, your Mark Gonzalez video that I still remember is one of the best pieces of skateboard art that that I've ever seen. And, you know, something that everyone should look at. I think you could see it on YouTube, right? It's called Backwards Forwards. It was a skate ballet that he made and performed in a museum in uh, Mönchengladbach, Germany. I can say because I had to say it a million times, Mm. but um, he's an incredible artist, an incredible athlete and poet. I have a dance background and I'm not really a skateboard background at all. I mean, I, I didn't even know any skateboarders in high school, but I like really responded to that, to the movement. And I think that he chose me to make that film because maybe I wasn't a skateboard photographer or filmmaker. And the things that I picked out were, you know, someone asked me like, why did you put so much of him falling? And I'm like, because people's bodies when they're falling are so elegant and amazing. And I don't know, you know, I did, it was a mix, but you know, I think it's kind of taboo, you know, you never show the skaters falling, but I always showed everyone falling because I thought it was beautiful, you know. <laughs> well, now they show it more in those skate videos. Now they do, but maybe yeah. in the 90s yeah. they no, didn't. they didn't, they didn't, but now it's... <laughs> I don't think they do, yeah. It's a thing, yeah. 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 Yeah, there's so much about that skateboarding era that's growing all the time. Another movie recently about skateboarding and hip-hop that pulls in a lot of that film and footage the, of those the years. Streets, the, all streets the streets were silent. silent, yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's a nice movie. Yeah. You've been right there for a lot of the different important scenes of New York. I don't know if you said this, but some people have said that Dash's passing marked the end of an era, that everything changed at that time. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you feel that? I absolutely, absolutely. Is it just it's for like, you? Is it a personal thing or is it no, more? No, no, I've heard it. I've heard it from people. I feel like. <laughs> The streets have energy, communities have have like an energetic feeling. And he was like a light, you know, and when that light went out and the way it went out, people really changed course, you know, like it made a tidal oh, yeah. wave of, of, of change that happened when he passed. And, and then there was a hole, there was an absence of a uh, certain excitement and a uh, momentum and, there was an abrupt halt. Certainly for his friends and the people who were around him, like Leo Fitzpatrick, who I know is in your film, and it was also on my podcast. He talks about Dash very lovingly and remembers him as just a very fun person, happy person, someone that he really enjoyed being with. And that was what was the important thing for him. You were able to capture that as well. And your name comes up, in fact, in that podcast 
as caring about his legacy and his story and exactly the way you started out the, the podcast talking about that of how you you wanted to protect him and be able to tell the story from a humanistic kind of family this new family that he'd put together after leaving his original family so yeah, good job yeah i mean thank you i think that ultimately it's a story. It's just like I had a I had a friend, artist friend, say to me, like, "What are you working on?" While I was entrenched in this for many many years, and I told him, and he said, "Why?" Mm. And I first was offended, ish, and then I was like, "Because that's what I do." And then I was like, "Okay, I like that question." And I'm like, "Because he was a boy, he was a person. Like, if I was making a film about a kid in Appalachia that had a story." It's enough. This is a human story. This is his story. He moved me. He moved a lot of people I know, but even if he just moved me, because when you make a film, you're going to be making that film for years and years and years. And if you are not making that film for the right reasons, you're going to want to kill yourself, you know? <laughs> so you better, you better have something that keeps striving you to tell that story, you know? And, and to me, just because he was a visual artist, because I had these, you know, really kind of close, not for anything conversations with him on tape, I could have made that film with no other voice in it because he's a visual artist. So he's speaking through his work. He's speaking on my camera. I, I have his voice. You know, I really wanted it to be predominantly in his words and and have friends supplement these stories and that's kind of the direction i went because to me that was the truest portrayal i could i could make but you know every film has a point of view you're the director it's your point of view there's nothing that doesn't have a point of view so i tried my best to to do that and my point of view was nothing but love so you know well we're very fortunate that you did that cheryl and thank you for being on my show today. And I just want to say that you succeeded. And I think you made one of the most important and beautiful films of an artist that I've ever seen. So, oh, which is, wow. So, that's so sweet to say. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you for being on my show. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.